It's wonderful to be here with all of you today. We have a wonderful crowd for which we're thankful, and if you do consider yourself a visitor, please know that you are our honored guest, and we welcome you back every time that we have an occasion and an opportunity to meet and assemble. What a great day. It's the Lord's Day. I've enjoyed so much so far worshiping with you, and I am honored now to be your speaker. This morning for a little while, we continue our series on the greatest sermon ever preached. It is the great sermon on the mount, and in particular, we're talking about the part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes that we began last time, which covers the first 12 verses of the gospel according to Matthew. Now, I got to tell you, in these passages, the Lord gives us the ground rules and he gives us the qualities and the characteristics to have true blessedness and true happiness. Now, I'm just going to say this. If you really want to truly be blessed in your life, and you really want to be happy in your life and fulfilled, please listen to the words of Jesus today. I know the world says this a lot. How are you doing? And they say, I'm blessed. And it's great. It's a nice thing to say. But I want to talk about really what it means to truly be blessed and truly be happy. It's found in the first 12 verses of the gospel according to Matthew. Last time we covered verses 3 and 4. I'm not going to re-preach these verses I'm going to be very brief in summary, but I have to summarize them quickly because they all flow together. They all work together. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Jesus began by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. I got to tell you about poor in spirit. It literally means to be destitute. It means utter poverty. But the Lord is very quick to say what kind of poverty he's talking about because he's not talking about being poor physically or monetarily. He's talking about being poor in spirit, meaning this, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It's a great thing. When you are poor in spirit, what you're saying is in your heart, in your mind, you've made the determined resolve, I am nothing without God. I can't do it without God. I need Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner all by myself. I'm imperfect and I need the Lord. That's a great thing. Because you know what's going to happen if you understand that I am poor in spirit? You're going to recognize I need help. And you're going to get the help from the only one that can help, and that's God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ. So a person first, if they really want to be blessed, if they really want to find true happiness, they need to be poor in spirit, recognizing I am destitute, I am nothing without God. I will say this. This eliminates the kind of person that says this. Please get this. I'm a good person. I don't need religion. I don't need to be a Christian because I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I'm a good woman. I do good things for people. I don't need to obey what the word of God says or obey the Lord because I'm a good person. That is not somebody that is poor in spirit. That is somebody that thinks they're good enough on their own. And guess what? Nobody is. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to go to heaven, number one, you got to be poor in spirit, but then there's more and it leads to the next one. Then Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn. What's that mean? The word mourning there in the context here means mourning over your sin. So 
I recognize I'm nothing without God. I have sin in my life. Then I'm going to mourn over my sin. Those are personal infractions against God himself. And everybody sins. You know what's beautiful about this? Please get this. This is wonderful. God wants you to be guilty and mourn over your sin. So you do something about it. But God does not want you to live in a state of perpetual guilt. Guilt is fine. Perpetual guilt is not. Blessed are they that mourn so they do something about it. What does God say you do about it? You obey the gospel. You come to Jesus. You are baptized for the remission of your sins. You're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Your sins are forgiven. And guess what? You are now comforted. Why? You know you've been forgiven. That's number one. That's how you first be comforted. Obey the gospel. Number two. There's a maintenance process. I love this. Because the Lord knows we're going to make mistakes and we're going to sin. So 1 John chapter 1 says, If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Even the contamination of that sin is gone when you confess that sin to God with repentance in your heart. Great stuff. You're comforted. But number three, there's even more. There's even more. What about the things that we habitually struggle with every day? What about the weaknesses that we keep falling back to? A lot of the times of the things that we struggle with, we struggle with things habitually over and over. We all have that. The Bible says in James 5, 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Therefore, all we got to do when we have those struggles is confess those to each other, pray for each other, have accountability with each other, and guess what? Again, we're going to be comforted because we're going to be forgiven. That is the context of the passage. It is mourning over your sin. But secondarily, in a secondary sense, what about the things that we all might mourn over in life, like the injustices that are going on in the world? What about those things? What about the things that we're troubled with and that we worry about every day? What about that? The child of God with a proper relationship with God, with a proper mindset, is going to be comforted. How? In a secondary sense, comforted knowing that God is totally in control. Great stuff. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, verse number five. He says this. He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The characteristics that Jesus describes here stems from mental dispositions. It is a mental disposition, meaning two things. Please get this. It means it, means it comes from conviction. And it comes from choice. Now I got to tell you, somebody might say, well, wait a minute, meek, that's just not me. That's just not my deal. That's not my personality. Doesn't matter. It is a mental disposition that comes from conviction and comes from choice. You got to make the choice. Just like you got to make the choice, I'm poor in spirit. I'm mourning over my sin. Now you got to make the choice to be meek. People don't like this word because they misunderstand it. What does the word actually mean? First of all, I will tell you this. Meekness does not mean weakness at all. Meekness as defined is this. It denotes one who is gentle, humble, considerate, mild, unassuming, and courteous, according to Mr. Fowler. And I got to tell you, these are qualities that everybody likes. I don't know about you, but I want to be friends with people like that. 
Nobody likes the guy that is arrogant and conceited and looks down upon everybody else and thinks they're better than everybody else. Nobody likes that. People want to be friends with this guy. Now, the one that was the very epitome of all these things in masterful detail was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And everything that Jesus was allowed to do and able to do came from his mental disposition of being meek. I know this. This Greek word is not readily used in the English language because people think it's a sign of weakness because they misunderstand it and they think that if I am meek, I am unable to take care of myself. And that's not true. I like what one scholar said. He said, scriptural meekness is not weakness. It is the fruit of power. It is the inner temperament that results from having the proper relationship with God. Notice how they work together. I'm poor in spirit. I mourn over my sin. I have a proper relationship with God. Guess what? Now I can be this guy right here. Because of that relationship, I can do that. All right. This disposition allows the believer to face difficulty and even persecution. Now get this. Without worrying about your own personal rights. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm not giving in. I know my rights. We're always worried about our own rights. Like injustices that may come our way. I know my rights. The phrase in the world that says you got to take care of number one. Nobody's going to take care of you, so you got to take care of number one. All of these things are worldly attitudes. They're not spiritual dispositions of the mind that God wants you to have. So if I have this disposition here, it is a sign of strength because, number one, I don't have to worry about myself. I don't have to worry about my rights. And by the way, if you want to talk about strength, think about Jesus. You think about Jesus. When he stood before Pilate and Pilate says, don't you understand what I can do to you? Don't you understand that I have the power to crucify you? I have the power to set you free if I want to. And Jesus said, you wouldn't have that authority except my father gave it to you. And then, he, then, in his defense, you know what he said? In his defense, nothing. Like a lamb dumb before his shearer, he opened not his mouth. He said, nothing. Weak? No. Meek. Unassuming. He didn't worry about his rights. He was concerned about what God wanted. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. That's what the child of God must be. Now, take it a step further. Let's go back. Let's go back to the ones that may have heard Jesus uttering such words or Jesus submitting himself to Pilate and the sentence to die on the cross. It must have flew in the face of every one of those Jewish people who were all about personal rights. Even to the extent of exerting their personal rights over Rome, even to the point of shedding blood if that was necessary. And yet Jesus, no, he was meek. He gave in. Folks, listen. The kingdom of Jesus is not characterized by external force. It is characterized by inner strength. Now, the final part of this beatitude brings much controversy. 
Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This phrase right here is very much misunderstood. A whole lot of things are said about this and brings a lot of controversy. Let me talk to you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. This is what it does not mean. Number one, the Lord is not teaching that his kingdom will be an earthly one, that he will rule on earth for a thousand years. It also does not support the premillennial doctrine or the paradise earth doctrine of the Watchtower Society. Doesn't support that. Jesus is never going to set foot on this earth ever again. I'm so thankful. When Jesus ascended to the Father, remember in Acts chapter 1, and they said, what are you looking up in that? What are you looking up for? The same Jesus who you saw go in the clouds will so come in like manner as you see him go in the clouds. He's coming back in the clouds. What does the Bible say? What does Paul say is going to happen in the end? Those that are saved are going to meet him in the air and ever be with the Lord forever. He's not coming back to this earth. He's not coming back to reign for a thousand years. Not going to happen. So inheriting the earth has nothing to do at all with this earth. It also has nothing to do with this phrase, paradise earth, or the doctrine of the Watchtower Society, which teaches that Jesus, when he comes back, will refurbish the earth that we currently now live on. No. In fact, you know the phrase that Peter talks about, new heavens and new earth? That word new means uninhabited. It means this. We're going to get somewhere. We're going to get to go somewhere that's uninhabited by us. More on that in just a moment where that is. So it's not this earth at all. Number two, what else is it not? Inheriting the earth does not refer to material prosperity. All right. First of all, there's nothing in the world wrong with material prosperity. Maybe you have some. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with it. If you have been blessed monetarily, good for you. Praise God for that. Because every good and perfect gift is from above. So if you've been blessed, that's wonderful. But I know faithful Christians that are faithful Christians, wonderfully faithful Christians, and they struggle monetarily. They struggle desperately monetarily. I also know that prosper some that do. I know people in the world that are terrible people, but man, they prosper financially. Good people in the world that are really struggling, okay? What's my point? My point is, though prosperity monetarily is not wrong, it's not necessarily promised to someone who decides to live a faithful life. It's not a promise for that. What does God promise? God promises that our needs are taken care of, but not prosperity to believers if you'll just follow him. So, what else does the Lord not mean? What's he talking about here? Well, some people believe that Jesus meant inheriting the earth means to enjoy it fully. And here's the reason to substantiate that theory. God created the earth for his people to enjoy. Is that true? Yes. Yes. I don't know about you. I enjoy Life. I do. I've had challenges like you have. I've had struggles like you have. I've had hard stuff like you have. But I can honestly say I've had a good life. And I enjoy it. I enjoy the world we live in. I just have it in perspective because I know it's not the end. But I enjoy it. 
So to substantiate the idea that inheriting the earth means you fully enjoy it because God prepared the earth for his people to enjoy and for his glory. Is that fact true? That fact is true. All right. Let's go further, though. Other people hold to the fact that inheriting the earth means this. That the righteous will triumph over the wicked in the day of judgment. Is that true? Yes, that's true. How do I know that? Parable of the tares. Remember, the tares and the wheat grow together, and in the end, the tares are bound up, and they're cast into the furnace. And then what does it say? I love this phrase. I love this phrase that Jesus says. He said, and then the righteous will shine forth. So will the righteous triumph over the wicked? Yes. And while those two things seem to have some kind of merit, they miss the main idea and they miss the context. So in understanding what the Lord means here about inheriting the earth, we have to interpret it in light of the interpretation of Old Testament history. It's very important to do that. Why? Because Jesus was also standing there talking to a Jewish audience on that day, and they would have understood what he was saying. It would have made sense when he used phrases like inherit the earth. Hold that thought. Let's look at these two words, inherit the earth. First, the word earth. The word earth literally means land. Okay? So whatever the Lord's talking about, the word earth there means land. The word inherit refers to one who receives their allotted portion of that land. Now, what's the illusion? The illusion, or it's alluding to the time when God promises people what? The promised land. The promised land of Canaan. It was a literal, specific place. It was the promised land. And by the way, the promised land of Canaan, the literal Canaan, was a picture of something greater that we're going to get someday. What he was saying is this. As the children of Israel were promised, ancient Israel was promised a promised land. So too the child of God that's faithful to Jesus Christ all the days of his life will have their allotted portion of that promised land. What is that? It's heaven. Isn't that great? You want to go to heaven? You got to be meek. You got to be meek. The Christian's a pilgrim in this world, making his way toward that promised inheritance. Let me give you some Bible for that. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. A sojourner, by the way, is a traveler. A pilgrim is somebody that makes a brief stay. Okay? That's all we are. We are travelers in the world, making a brief stay in the world, waiting for the promised inheritance or our allotted portion of the promised land, and that's heaven. Okay. Again, you got to be meek. All right, so let me ask you this. You might be wondering, okay, so what's the benefit? What is the practical benefit in my life of being meek? And number two, why do we need to have it? Two things. Why do we got to have it? And what's the practical benefit of it? Here it is. Meekness is the key to gaining this inheritance because it stems from an inner quality that allows man to endure life's hardships patiently. 
I don't know about you, but that's good stuff. Because I'm going to tell you something. Life is hard. It's difficult. Things are difficult in life. Don't you want it to have some kind of a quality or something innate in you that gives you the strength to persevere and make it to the end? And not let go and give up? If you knew how important the inheritance was, you'd understand the importance of not letting go and not giving up. Meekness is the quality of gaining that. It gives you the inner strength. And by the way, this doesn't sound like weakness to me. This sounds like courage to me. This sounds like strength to me. This is the quality that's going to give me the strength and the courage to make it to the end and endure the hardships of life patiently no matter what. Let's go back to Moses and talk about their promised land. Many that lived under Moses and many that followed Moses did not manifest the spirit of meekness. They didn't have that quality at all. You know what happened happened to them? They died in the wilderness, falling short of the promised land. I don't want to fall short. Christians can fall short, though. They can fall short of their rest if they don't. Patiently and meekly endure. Let me give you some Bible for that. And by the way, anybody that would say that a person cannot lose their salvation, please look at this passage. It's very sobering. Hebrews 4 and 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, this promise remains to everybody that's still living. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Let's not be short. Let's hang in there. Let's not give up. So... Meek is not weak. It's the ultimate demonstration of of strength. And now we come to verse 6. They're building on one another. I got to do something in order to remain faithful. I got to do something in order to stay the course. Here it is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now I got to tell you this. We talk a whole lot about living a righteous life, don't we? How many times have we heard sermons on godly living, faithful living, living the Christian life, righteous deeds, all the things that we must do, obedient life, and all that. And all that's true. We spend a lot of time talking about righteousness, but we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about hungering and thirsting for it. I'm going to say this. Maybe that's the problem. Because if we're having a problem with righteousness... Maybe the problem is we're not hungering and thirsting for it. I know this. I don't know about you, but I know in my life, if I want something really bad, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I don't know if that's good or not. I'm just telling you that's the truth for me. If I want to buy something, I'll do whatever I can or whatever I need to to have the means to get it because I want it. If I want to achieve a goal and it means a lot to me, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it because I want to. There's a phrase that my coaches used to tell me and my teammates as they coached our football teams. You got to want to. How many times have you heard the phrase, this team just wanted it more than the other team? They weren't even as good, but they wanted it more. I'm going to tell you something. Wanting it is everything. 
Because if you want it, you'll do what it takes to get it. And it begins with hungering and thirsting for it. It's got to mean something. An intense desire. We understand about physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment is more important than physical nourishment. It has to be part of the Christian life. We have to have an insatiable desire for righteousness. And how do you get it? Somebody might say, well, how do you get it? I'd like to have that. How do you get it? Here's how you get it. You can't get it without this. Righteousness is obtained by seeking God's ways and walking in his commands. That's it. You can't have God's righteousness without that. Is it important? It's absolutely important. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In this beatitude, what the Lord is saying is, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, meaning I've ridded myself. I've got this huge void, right? I'm poor in spirit, destitute in spirit. But Jesus says those that are blessed are those that fill that void with God's righteousness. Are you kind of at least, at least getting the picture that all of this is not weakness at all? It's about strength. But it's about where you get the strength. It's not you. It's God. It's his strength. It's not my personal righteousness. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But when I fill the void of being poor in spirit with God's righteousness, guess what? Good stuff. It's a lifelong spiritual quest. And when you grow spiritually, please get this, you have to also grow in your appetite for it. We talk about spiritual growth. Well, your appetite has to grow too. Very familiar passage. I'm going to get back to this passage later, but I want to put it on the screen. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We understand the passage. It goes back to infancy and all of that and the milk of the word. Okay, I'm just going to say this. At some point in time, Christian, you got to need the meat. You got to do two things with the meat. You got to number one, crave it. And you got to number two, be able to handle it and eat it and digest it. I'm talking about the meat of the Word of, God, of, of, the word of God. So, in order for me to grow, my hunger has to grow too. It has to grow too. Righteousness requires responsibility. It's not, it's not given to us without our obedience. In fact, John says this. Notice what John says in, 1 Peter, in John chapter 3 and verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteous is righteous. Righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, share something with you really quickly. Very quickly. When I was a football player, I hated practice. I really did. And maybe it was because our coaches back were old school and they treated us like dogs. They ran us to death and they didn't give us any water because they thought if they gave you any water, it was a sign of weakness. We know that's wrong. We know that doesn't exist today. We know hydration's everything. We get it. But I was coached old school. And I got to tell you, I hated practice. It was hard. Loved game day. Hated practice. Practice, though, is always hard. So if you want righteousness, Jesus said you got to hunger and thirst after it, but oh, there's more. You have to even practice it. And that's hard. You know why? It's practice. 
And sometimes it goes against our being. Sometimes it goes against our nature. That's what John says. Let's notice what, what did Paul say to Timothy? Not only do you got to practice it, you have to do something else. you got to pursue it. But you, O man, of, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So, if you want to be righteous, you got to hunger and thirst after it. you got to practice it according to John, and you have to pursue it according to Paul. It's, it's a little harder than, than you think. Because it requires what? Effort on all of our part. Furthermore, Paul reminds the Romans that salvation is obtained by obedience to the faith that's found in the gospel. I'm going to give you some Bible here now. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. What is the foundation and what is the standard? We drop down to verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ... For it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the word, folks. In the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Jesus says this, if you do this, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness... You're going to be filled. I got to tell you, in 56 years of life, I have found people, many, many, many people, who are grasping, seeking, and diligently looking for something because there's a void in their life. And they just don't know what they're looking for. I'm going to tell you what the answer is when there's a void. It is God's righteousness. And when you hunger and thirst for it, I love this, you're going to be filled. You are going to be filled. It is the promise of complete satisfaction. It is what you're looking for. Godly desires satisfied. Spiritual bellies satisfied. And this word filled here is a very interesting word. It is a very strong word. It is a graphic word. And in its origins, it literally was used to the fattening of animals in a stall. Okay, in a good way, you're going to get fat. In a good way. Spiritually. You're going to be filled. You're going to be satisfied. In similar fashion, you're never going to go hungry. You're never going to go lacking because all hunger is satisfied with the word of God. Just a little side point here, please. From a spiritual standpoint and a spiritual perspective, okay? I have to make a couple of observations here, please. It's okay to have questions And it's okay to have doubts. Only if the source of the answer for those questions and the satisfaction of those doubts is found in that source right there in the Word, then no problem. 
Because everybody's going to have human feelings of doubt and questions. Okay, I get it. No problem if the source for the answers is the word of God. Number two thing I have to say. Please do not waste time pondering the oft-asked theological question that has no answer, and that is the question, why? Don't do that. Number three, I got to say, at some point in time in your life, your faith is just going to have to kick in. You're going to have to believe it and accept it by faith. What's faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I can't see it, so what? Faith. And I realize this is a growth process. I do, I do understand that and I get it. So how are you going to erase the questions? How are you going to erase the doubt? How are you going to do it? Here's how you're going to do it. When the word of God is the answer, it will answer your questions and strengthen your faith. And when your faith is strengthened, the doubts will go away. But it all stems from the word of God, that great source. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, please, goes hand in hand with the word of God. Let's go back to that passage. First, uh, let's go back to 1 Peter 2 and verse 2 again, please. As newborn babes, what does that mean? Newborn babes, it actually from Thayer means new or recent or earliest infancy. We understand this. From earliest infancy, a baby craves nourishment. They do. I get that. We all get that. They crave nourishment. It begins as a babe in Christ, craving the spiritual nourishment of the word of God. But I have to say, it doesn't stop there. I want to ask you a question. Answer this question to yourself. Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness that you may be filled? Are you feeding on the word of God? Do you still have the insatiable desire for the spiritual nourishment you once got from the word of God when you obeyed the gospel? Are you still hungry? Or are you good? I'm good. Because if you're good, you stop growing. And if you stop growing, you begin to die. Can't do it. Let's not do that. Why is it that the word of God is all sufficient? Now, we know that. The Bible says that it is. But why is the word of God all sufficient for all of these answers? Why is it? Why is it the only thing that we need, spiritually speaking? It's because of the word desire and because of the word pure. Let's notice what they are. The word desire, by the way, is an emphatic in the sentence, meaning this. It's kind of like a baby that comes into the world. Whether it's nursing, whether it's with a bottle, whether it's whatever, they need nourishment, they have a desire to have it. Babies come into this world hungry. So should the child of God. You come into the world hungry, so you have that desire, that burning deep desire. Got it? All right. What about pure in the New King James, it says pure. In the Old King James, it says sincere. Do you know what that word means? 
The word pure in the English language from the Greek word literally means this words, these two words here, without wax. It means this, without flaw. Let me tell you what the without wax part means. If a carpenter, and you may remember this from years ago, but a carpenter that goes and does beautiful work or a sculptor that did beautiful work that was considered pure or without flaw, it was said that his work was without wax. Why? Because guess what? When he messed up and he made a mistake, you know what they would do? They would take wax and they would fit the imperfection with wax. Therefore, it was now acceptable. But guess what? It wasn't pure. It wasn't without wax. It did have a flaw. What's the word of God? Oh, it's without wax. It is without a flaw. Hey, we got painters in this audience. A painter's putty and paint make a carpenter what he ain't. Been saying that for years. Because there's no such thing as perfect work, perfect craftsmanship. There's always flaws, right? That's why they use wax for the imperfections. But the word of God is trustworthy. You don't have to worry about it. It has no flaw. You know what Peter's doing here? He's giving us a lesson on how to be hungry, to hunger for the right stuff. Now, please let me notice with you the dangers of filling your minds with the wrong stuff. When you fill your minds with the wrong stuff, it destroys your appetite for the good stuff. What's the good stuff? We already said what, what that was. When you fill your mind with the bad stuff. Let me give you an example of this. Luke chapter 15. Don't turn in your Bibles there. I'm going to be very brief. A couple little tiny points and one observation, please. A couple facts. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal, okay, he goes to his father, he gets his inheritance, he goes out into the far country, he wastes it all, he spends it all, he's starving. Now where is he? Now he is in the pig pen, slopping the hogs, a degrading job for a Jewish boy because pigs were unclean in the Old Testament. So you got this guy, a Jewish boy, in this pig pen, starving to death, and the Bible says what? He was so hungry, he would have eaten the husks that the pigs ate, but nobody gave it to him. We already know all that part. Here's my point. Here's my observation. Even if he was given the husks to eat, it would not have satisfied him at all. You know why? Husks destroy the appetite. And pervert the taste. And that's what happens when you fill your mind with garbage. From a spiritual perspective. When you fill your mind from a spiritual perspective on other things in the word of God. Or instead of the word of God. It destroys the appetite and perverts the taste. Side point here. I'm not saying you can never read another book besides the Bible. My library is filled with books. Religious books, all kinds of books. It's not my point. But please understand, when you read a book, it was written by a man. No matter how scholarly he might have been, he's still a man. Okay? The Bible is infallible. It's perfect. It's pure. It is without wax. It is without flaw. Man's books are with flaw, perhaps. So we have to be careful. What I'm saying is this. When you fill your mind with philosophical meanderings and spiritual things from the world standpoint that violate the word of God, don't do that. 
And when you start to crave that which contradicts the word of God, you know what you're doing? You're destroying your appetite and you're perverting the taste for the word of God. We don't want to do that. Notice what Paul said after he instructed Timothy, by the way, to charge those that teach no other doctrine. He said this in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 4. He said this, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. I'm not going into this. We studied this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, not long ago in our Sunday afternoons. I'm not going into that, but I will say this. I'll sum it up like this. Paul is saying, avoid the things that give rise to speculations that cause disputes, or as the King James says, questions, rather than godliness, rather than edification. In other words, avoid the things that attack and corrupt and assault biblical truth. That's all I'm saying. Avoid those things. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20. There's more. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. All right. What is an idle babbling? It literally is translated something outside the sacred temple. We don't need that. Chuck it out. What else? What's contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge? What's that? It is opposing arguments... The antithesis of what is falsely called knowledge. Don't need it. Don't need it. Avoid the garbage that comes in the name of religion and philosophy. And remember that hungering and thirsting for righteousness will always be connected to the word. And don't let your mind be corrupted. In conclusion today, and I'm wrapping it up. Here we go. I want to summarize the first four Beatitudes as they fit together very fast, very briefly. He begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, I am destitute without God. I need God. Great stuff. I need God. I need Jesus Christ. What's it going to cause me to do? It's going to cause me to mourn over my sin with repentance and godly sorrow, meaning I'm going to do something about it. I obey the gospel. I'm washed in the blood of Jesus. I'm baptized for the remission of my sins. Guess what? I'm comforted now. I'm not living in a state of perpetual mourning. I'm comforted because why? Because I'm forgiven. Then he said, I'm going to have the spiritual disposition that I need to have. I'm going to have meekness. And meekness is going to give me the right mindset. It's going to give me the courage and the strength to persevere no matter what. And I'm going to inherit my allotted portion in heaven one day by doing that. And then I got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Founded on the word of God. And I'm going to be filled, satisfied in every way. I'm done. I'm going to tell you what. I'm not. But Jesus is the greatest. And this sermon is the greatest sermon ever preached. And we've only just begun. We never close a time when we assemble without extending an invitation. Here's the invitation. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want to come to Jesus? Here's how you do it. You got to hear the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've done that today. Upon hearing the word of God, though, you got a choice to make. 
You got to believe with all your heart. Hebrews 11 and 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What else? I got to change my life. I got to change my ways. How do you do that? You got to repent of your sins. Acts 17 and 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a great thing. Change for the good. Never let it be that we get to the point where we don't think we can change. We better be changing our whole life if it's for the good. Then what? Be willing to make the greatest confession you'll ever make, the greatest words that'll ever come out of your mouth. Confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Acts 8.37. Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Upon taking these steps, you are now a fit candidate to find the point of salvation. It's at baptism. Here it is. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Mark 16.16. Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Are you saved? If you're not, you can do that today. We'd love to assist you in that. Maybe you are. Maybe you've taken these steps. Maybe there are things in your life that just aren't right. Then fine. How about that other process we talked about to be comforted? Confess him before God. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's confession with repentance. So if you will confess those sins with repentance in your heart, God will forgive you and God will restore when we pray. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.